Well, people are very passionate about their teens. I'm sure you've probably noticed that, no matter what the subject is. My husband is very passionate about his team. It's a soccer team, or as he says, European football team. And he follows a small second division team that's in his hometown in the north of Sweden. So it's a team you've never heard of, but he loves this team. He knows all the details, he knows all the players, all the intrigue, their whole schedule, what's going on. He will get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch these soccer games. He sets his alarm. I'm always like, don't wake me up, please don't wake me up. And in the morning, he's all like, yes, we won. And now he'll be like, oh, we lost. And so I'll say, oh, really? Well, what position did you play, honey? <laughs> He's always like, ha, ha, ha. Uh, but in teams, there is kind of like a, an us and a them, right? A we and a they. And when it comes to our lives, too, beyond sports, we have a sense of teams, right? The people we surround ourselves with, the people that we're doing life with, that we identify with. And in our spiritual life, it's critical because there are two teams. And our passage today describes them, those that follow Christ and those that oppose or deny him. And the Apostle John paints them in very stark contrast. It's an us and them. It's a truth and error. It's a darkness and light. It's a followers of Christ and deniers or opposers of Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, what team am I on? Am I, am I a follower of Christ? How do I know that? Am I really a Christian? And if not, What's the alternative if there's only two teens? Well, our passage has the answer to that. And in other parts of 1 John, we've seen that there are tests, there are hallmarks, there are signs of what it means to be a true Christian. You might remember we looked at the test of love for each other as a sign of true Christianity. And today we're going to look at the test of truth as a sign of true discipleship, true Christianity. Because there's nothing worse than getting to the end of your life, thinking you're right with Christ, only to find out you're not, and it's too late. But John was writing to a group of believers. He wanted to encourage them. So this should be an encouragement to us. If we know that we've turned and trusted in Christ, we put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ, then this should, should encourage us and exhort us to run the race with excellence, to stay the course to run hard. So let's take a look at our passage. Today we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to start. We're going to go all the way to verse 27. So if you want to follow along with me, let's look at these verses together. So 1 John 2, 18. Children, it starts out, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist, this is the Antichrist, proper name, is coming so now have many antichrists, plural, right, lesser antichrists, they've come. They're already here. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not, they, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, all, and you all have knowledge. 
I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses, whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So there's a few things we need to unpack in these verses. Starting out with the first word, right? Children. So John is addressing an audience that he's familiar with. He knows them. He knows the situation. He knows that false teachers have arisen in the ranks. And he refers to this being the last hour. Maybe you looked up some of these verses in your homework. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 1, verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 20. And you saw that last, the last hour, the last time, the last days. It's not just a 60-minute period of time, but it's the period of time prior to Christ's return. Right? There's sort of an immediacy to it. And we know at Compass right, that we believe that Christ can return at any time. Right? The stage is set. We're not waiting for any particular event to signal that it's time for Christ to return. He can break into our world at any time. So there is an immediacy to it, a sense that this is the last quarter of the inning, that we're ready to go. Nothing remains to be done. And you see in verse 18b that therefore, we know that it is the last hour, that we're therefore, right, for this, for this reason, always makes us look back, what reason is it? It's the false teachers, right? The fact that the false teachers have arrived, that they're here, right, in the present tense, right, they're among them right now, is the signal that we know that this is the last hour. And an antichrist, which is the false teachers are referred to as antichrists, is broadly defined as anyone who denies Christ. Right? And you see in verse 22 is a great definition, right? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Anti meaning against, Christos meaning Christ. This is the person that's against Christ. This is the opposer of Christ. And we reference two different types of antichrists, right? There's the antichrists, plural, right? The lesser antichrist, the false teachers. And then there is antichrist as a proper name, the antichrist that we see referenced throughout the Bible in different ways. And John wants to give a sense of urgency, but yet this was written over 2,000 years ago, right? How much more should we have a sense of urgency now as that day approaches? Deceivers are going to be coming and going from bad to worse. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, that says evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's 2 Timothy 3, 13. So this isn't to scare you, but just to make you aware, to make you alert, so that when you see these things happening, you can say, yep, right on schedule. 
So point one in your outline is expect increasing spiritual deceptions. Expect increasing spiritual deceptions. These antichrists, they rose up from the ranks of the church, right, and they were sharing some new information. They said that Jesus not, uh, he only seemed to have a physical body, right? He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't fully God and fully man. And so we can expect increasing spiritual deceptions, new information, new prophets, new teaching. Really, spiritual fads are what they are. When I think about that word, I think about fad diets. Maybe you've tried a fad diet or two. I looked up a few fad diets. These are fad diets that have actually killed people. All right, check this out. Sunshine, the sunshine diet, right? You don't eat anything, you just live on sunshine. Okay, interesting. This one is great, the cotton ball diet. Yeah, you take cotton balls and you soak them in something sweet like orange juice, and then you eat the cotton balls because they fill up your stomach, right? There's no nutrition there, no calories. Of course, the point is that they lodge in your body and your intestines, right? Causing blockages and surgery and even death. Or perhaps my favorite is the Red Bull diet. Yeah, right. Only Red Bull, 14 cans of Red Bull a day. Think about the sugar, right? The caffeine, the cost. It's more calories than you even need to consume. Crazy, right? What is it about these fad diets that we find exciting? It's new, right? It's something that promises maybe an easier way than the old tried and true method. I mean, nobody really gets excited about eat a healthy, balanced diet, drink water, and exercise. Right? I mean, like, that's not exciting. Right? We're, we're looking for something new. And so it is with our spiritual life. Right? We can look for something new, some new revelation, some new twist on Jesus. You just look out on the internet today and see what is being promoted. Blogs, articles, twisting Jesus subtly to appeal to our culture. Look at what we had for Hot Topics. Look at the Jesus that has been represented in the books that Stephanie covered in Hot Topic, like The Shack, or Jesus Calling, or Girl, Wash Your Face. There's a desire for something new, and we have it. Why is it that we want something new versus something true? Something new versus something true. We're looking for that special insider knowledge we can grow tired of what Jude 3 says is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Right? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It can become commonplace to us. Besides seeking out things that are new, other spiritual fads that can be alluring or appealing or maybe things that seem easier or more comfortable, less self-denial, it feels better or promises material blessings. Jesus' message of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me doesn't always feel very good. Second Timothy chapter four, verses three and four says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. 
right? That itching ears, you wanna hear something that feels good, that suits your passions, that can scratch that itch. And there can be parts of the Bible, maybe we don't like. Parts of Jesus' teaching that grate against our own sensibility. We want to disregard those and hear something that feels good to us. Thomas Jefferson felt this way. He was an enlightened man, and as he read the Bible, he felt that there were parts in there that he just didn't like. So he took out his penknife and he cut them out. And he had this Bible that was like Swiss cheese. You can see it at his home in Monticello. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And he referred to it as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Because he didn't like parts of the Bible and he thought, well, I'm just going to cut those out. And so we see in verse 19, right, there's a split in the church over what people believed. But this isn't just a, a minor doctrinal issue. These people just didn't leave to go to another church because they didn't like the worship music or something like that. No. Paul, uh, Paul, John's verse said in uh, verse 19, they went out from us. Right, That word out is a strong term. They left us but they were not of us. For the reason is, if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But the contrast, they went out that it might become plain, that it might become clear that they all are not of us. So it's us and them, right? John uses the word us five times in that passage right there. It's a clear contrast. They went out, from us. They were once members of the community. They went out voluntarily. They weren't kicked out. They didn't leave for another church. This passage reveals their true spiritual status. They left because they were not true followers of Christ. They were not genuine believers. Even though perhaps they looked that way, right? They were worshiping and fellowshipping with the group, right? Maybe they had adopted Christian terminology. Maybe they had attractive personalities. You know, they didn't have you know, horns and pitchforks. They blended in, but yet they were not true, genuine believers. Now we need to have discernment when we think about the people in our church body. We don't want to beat people over the head with minor doctrinal issues, right? We don't want to try and prove how much we know about the Bible versus the other person. That's not what's going on here. Certainly, we don't want to compromise on who Christ is and what the gospel is. But the point of this passage is these people, they weren't believers to begin with, right? And this just showed their hearts. Nowadays, we see more and more deniers of Christ surfacing. And the internet and social media has given these people a platform for which to proclaim their views Perhaps you've heard of Bart Ehrman. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, a well-read, educated man. He's the chair of religious studies at University of North Carolina, and he's an evangelical turned atheist and skeptic. He's written books, articles, blogs, podcasts, all trying to disprove and discredit Christianity, picking apart on small, insignificant things for his own agenda. Just look at some of the books he's written and you can see this, their subtitles just give you a sense of the premise. These are best-selling, New York Times best-selling books. Misquoting Jesus, 
the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Wow. Or how Jesus became God, the exaltation of a Jewish preacher from Galilee. Or forged, written in the name of God, why the Bible's authors are not who we think they are. Man, those are pretty salacious titles. Now to counter that, there's a great book that we have in the bookstore called Misquoting Truth. Love that title right there. Um, by Timothy Jones that refutes all of his work. So if you're intrigued by that, go take a look at that book. But these books, they're persuasive. They're convincing. But the best defense against these lies and deceit is knowing the truth. Right? Opinion is not truth. And we've been given tools to help us discern the truth and refute these lies, to recognize them and to counter them. So again, this teaching isn't to scare you, it's just to make you aware, to make you alert, and then to, to give you resources to help refute these truths. And our passage continues, God has given us resources to help refute these truths, these untruths, excuse me, to counter them with truth. So starting in verse 20, it says, but, this is a contrast, right? But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And then verse 27 again says, this anointing, right? The anointing you've received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So John's audience of believers, like all believers, they have this anointing that they receive from God. It abides in us. It teaches us. This is the Holy Spirit. So this is not the anointing you might think of in the Old Testament where it's anointing with ceremonial oils. No, this is something that is available to all believers, right? This isn't a special enlightenment. This is something that we have that abides in us, that teaches us. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the tools that we have to help us identify these false teachers, these liars, these deniers of Christ, and ultimately the Father. The second tool we have is the first of two commandments that we have in our passage, and it's in verse 24. It says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Right, so that's the command, that's the imperative. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. This is the message that the apostles have taught, right? This is the gospel. This is God's word. This is what we have now as the Bible. It is to abide in us. So those are the two resources we have, the word and the Holy Spirit to use to discern God's truths, to protect ourselves from false teaching and to safeguard ourselves from being led astray. So point two on your outline is guard yourself using God's word and his spirit. Guard yourself using God's word and his spirit. Those are the two things we have for discernment. What you've heard, right, verse 24, the word, and what you received, the anointing, the Holy Spirit, in verse 27. And that's the biblical balance, right? The word and the spirit, the spirit and the word. Sometimes we can focus on one and neglect the other, right? Some people focus on the word and neglect the spirit who interprets it. Some people focus on the spirit and neglect the word that it teaches from. So the only way to safeguard ourselves against these lies is to have both, to have that balance, what we heard in the beginning and the anointing that we received. And we need to test everything that we hear by the Bible and the Holy Spirit. We don't need any new teaching. 
right? We just need the Spirit to help us obey the teaching that we have in the Bible and to help us understand it. So from our passage, we're going to get three sub-points that help us to guard ourselves in God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 21, this is going to be our first sub-point. It says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So, sub-point letter A is beware of relativism. Beware of relativism. No lie is of the truth. We need 100% true truth, unadulterated truth. Not my truth and your truth, right? We need the truth. And relativism says that all truths are equally true, right? There's not one objective standard for truth, that something can be true for you and not for me, and that's okay. But we know that's not the case, that we have an objective standard for truth in the Bible, right? That is true truth. And relativism is becoming the norm today. People accept it. They say, speak your truth. But yet we know that there is a truth that is true for all people at all times, and that is in God's word. So we need to embrace that as the standard of true truth. The second sub-point we're going to get is from verse 22. So verse 22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So subpoint letter B is beware subtle deniers of Christ. Beware subtle deniers of Christ. And here we see in this passage that deniers are denying that Jesus is Lord. That's the Antichrist, the opposer of Christ, that's denying the deity of Christ and by default, denying God the Father. And that word deny, it's to say no, right? A firm refusal. And it's ongoing, it's in present tense, it's habitual. Today, people deny Christ's deity, right? The virgin birth, his miracles, his resurrection, his return. There are only two options. We can confess him, or we can deny him, right? We can acknowledge Christ, we can follow Christ, or we can deny him. You can't have God without believing in Christ. They're intertwined. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one, right? That's John 10, 30. Our passage says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, while whoever acknowledges, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So that's two ways of saying the same thing. And John had in mind more more than just kind of like a a private belief or disbelief. This was a public confession. You're confessing the Son. There are two camps. Those who confess Christ and those who deny him. Two teams, us and them. It reminds me of one summer, many years ago now, Uh, My kids were maybe 8 and 10, and I was teaching them a survey of the Bible that Pastor Mike wrote called Bible Basics. And you would draw a picture of a book of the Bible and talk through what was going on in that particular book. 
And it came up about my testimony. And I shared with the kids that, well, you know, mom wasn't always a follower of Christ. And they were like, what? Mom, our Bible teacher? Like, you weren't born that way? And I was like, no, you know, I was, I came to Christ after you were born. I, you know, heard the gospel. I turned and trusted. And they were pondering that. And then my oldest said, I know, you were on Satan's team. (laughs) But he was right. Yeah, I was a nice person. I did good things. I loved my parents. I was an obedient child. But I was on Satan's team because I was not a follower of Christ. So I was a denier. I think we like to think that there's a third bucket that is for nice people, right? But there's not. Our passage is clear. If we're not a follower of Christ, then we are a denier. Well, you might say, oh, I didn't speak up for Christ last week. Am I a denier? We need to look and say, is that habitual? Is it ongoing? Peter denied Christ. When we deny Christ, are we quick to feel that conviction from the Holy Spirit and say, I'm going to do better next time? We're not perfect, and we do deny Christ on occasion, but is that an ongoing pattern in our life? We need to do better. We need to stand with Christ versus the opposers of Christ. And the difference can be subtle. We can have friends, colleagues, even family members that say, I like Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. I'm pro-Jesus. We need to ask further questions. What Jesus are you excited about? You know, who, what Jesus are you talking about? We have to peel the onion, go a little deeper than just those surface statements of, I believe in Jesus. Don't assume that it's the same Jesus. You could say, is he the son of God? Right? Is he the perfect representation, co-equal in divinity of God? And is the Bible your source of truth? There are two religions, right? Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, that are pro-Jesus, that say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is part of our religion. But when you peel back the layers, you see that Jesus is not fully God. The Jesus that they represent is not fully God, not co-equal in divinity. And the Bible is not the sole source of truth. Right? They have another book that they use to interpret the Bible. And these can be good people, right? nice people, friends and neighbors that do good things. But their sincerity of belief does not make it true. You can believe and be sincerely wrong. The depth of sincerity doesn't line up, even if something is not true. You can sincerely believe and be sincerely wrong. So that's why we need the Word and the Holy Spirit to filter everything so that we can refute these false teachings. We need to proclaim the true Jesus, not a Jesus that's more palatable today's culture. And we need to stick with the true gospel. So subpoint letter C is beware of a distorted gospel. Beware of a distorted, distorted gospel. And we get this from verse 24. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what you heard from the beginning, this is the gospel. This is the tried and true message of repentance and faith, right? turning and trusting in Christ. We don't want to be carried away by a new message, by newfangled teaching. Like it says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Right? Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And I love the heading on this, says, no other gospel. Starting in verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you or want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Wow, that's strong words. And then he repeats himself. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we re you received, let him be accursed. So what we heard from the beginning, right, the message of repentance and faith, we need to stick with that. We don't want to look for a new distorted gospel. We don't want to embrace something that maybe feels better, is more appealing. Because that message that we heard from the beginning, that tried and true message, is what gives us eternal life. We see that in verse 25, right? This is the message with a promise that gives us eternal life. We shouldn't gloss over that. So how do we hold fast to the word? By reading it, by memorizing it, by meditating on it. You're here at Bible study. That's awesome. That's a great thing. How are you doing on DBR? Daily Bible reading, do you have that on your phone, the app on your phone, or maybe you're doing it on the internet, or you have the card that you're reading along in your Bible? Um, how about having scriptures sprinkled throughout your home on sticky notes? Take those little memory card verses and put them around your house. Artwork that has scripture in it. How about on your phone, popping up on your lock screen? your screensaver at work, sprinkled into books you read beside the Bible, right? Maybe reading some theological books or some Christian books that have scripture woven into it. Talking about it with friends in your home fellowship group. All ways that we can hold fast to the word. And then we want to guard ourselves with the spirit, right? We want to ask for illumination. We want to ask for the spirit to open our eyes Psalm 119, verse 18 is a great memory verse. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Right? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. That's Psalm 119, 18. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit. We want to make sure that we don't cloud it with sin right? or our feelings. We want to remain sensitive to the Spirit's leading. John's going to return to his warnings in verse 26. He writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Right? You have all the things you need for self-defense. Now, he's not saying that you have no need for teaching, because this letter is a teaching in and of itself. But as his, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie... 
just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this is our second command. This is our imperative, this last three words, right? Abide in him. Remain in Christ to the end. John encourages us to resist the lies of the Antichrist and let the truth that we heard from the beginning abide in us or remain in us so that we can abide or remain in fellowship with God the Father and with Christ the Son. So point three on your outline is stay steadfast in following Christ. Stay steadfast in following Christ. Followers of Christ follow Christ to the end. And that word abide is the word meno, the Greek word meno, which means to remain, to dwell, to take up residence. And John used that 25 times, four times in our passage alone. And Ray Stedman, the pastor, the author, gives a great example of what it means to abide. If you have a friend or a house guest that come over and you say, make yourself at home, you don't really mean go poking around in every drawer, right? Use every bathroom, sleep in any bed you want. No, that's not what you mean. That's not an example of abiding. But if you have someone and you say to them, use this house as if it's your own, take it over completely, do anything you want, possess this house, that's what we mean when we say abide. Christ, Christ has to take over our entire being, our entire focus should be following and pleasing him. And the word of God is to abide in us. Sometimes we want the Bible to maybe move into a room or two of our house, but we're going to keep the rest of our house for ourselves. Right? That's not letting the word of God grip us, possess us. We need to let the word of God take over completely. Maybe we can study the Bible, we can make a mental ascent to it. Yeah, so that the word of God, it's in our library, right? It's up here, but we've got the rest of this house here. So we can like the warm, fuzzy parts of the Bible, and we'll say, well, we'll let the Bible and the word of God move into this little cozy spot next to the fireplace. But I'll take the rest of this house. We need to let the word of God come into the entire house and take over every corner and crevice, every cobwebbed spot, every dark, messy closet has to be open for the Holy Spirit and the word of God to do its work. That's what abiding means. We need to throw open the doors of our lives and let God move into every corner. That's hard work. And sometimes we'll fall down. But we need to get back up and keep going and keep improving, keep trying harder, continually growing and moving in that direction till the end, all the way. If you look back at verse 19, right? It said, for if they belonged, they would have stayed. True Christians stick it out to the end. John Calvin said, where God's call is effectual, there will be sure perseverance. I love that, sure perseverance. God's call is effectual. When you are a real Christian, there is sure perseverance. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good thing, a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can get scared like, what if I can't make it to the end? 
All true Christians make it to the end. And it's not about our ability to hold ourselves in Christ, but it's Christ's ability to keep us. And we get that reversed, and sometimes we try to work harder to stay in Christ. We get scared. I might fall away. But it's Christ's ability to hold us that gives us that assurity. Christ's ability to keep us. As in Jude 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Or John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What great encouragement that is for us today's lady. That is so encouraging. Does that mean that we then just slack off, take our foot off the gas? All right, God's got me, I'm on autopilot. No, not at all. The test of discipleship is going the distance. I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and one of the big events, highlights of the year, is the running of the Boston Marathon. And it happens in April on Patriot's Day, maybe because it's after a long, cold winter, spring is finally coming, it's a holiday, which I'm not even sure if it's a real holiday, but in Massachusetts, it sure is, and everybody turns out for the marathon. It starts outside of Boston and winds its way through a bunch of small towns and it ends in downtown Boston at the finish line. And people go in line along the streets and cheer on the runners and they have parties in their driveways. And right around mile 20 is a landmark hill called Heartbreak Hill. And it's a half a mile incline that's so tough. And it's happening at a time when the runners are tired. Right? There's not a lot of spring in their legs. They're plodding up this hill. And a lot of people drop out. They just can't make it over Heartbreak Hill. The trouble is that once you make it over Heartbreak Hill, it's all downhill from there, right? You basically finish the race if you can make it over Heartbreak Hill. Well, as we seek to follow Christ, there are periods where we can be tired. We can feel like we've hit heartbreak hill. There's not a spring in our step any longer. Maybe 2020 has felt like that to you. And we need to strengthen ourselves with God's spirit, right? with God's word, with his promises, right? and with his people that are around us to support us. One of the things I love about the Boston Marathon is how people encourage each other, how the runners encourage and support each other. Maybe you've seen the pictures of runners coming alongside somebody who's hurt or tired and putting their arm around them and helping them up, helping them to get up over that hill. There's also been deceptions in the Boston Marathon. Maybe you heard or you even remember Rosie Ruiz was declared the winner of the Boston Marathon, 1980, record-breaking time, only to have her title stripped eight days later when it turned out that she jumped into the race halfway through. She didn't start with the runners. She wasn't part of the team, part of the pack. 
she hopped in. I don't think she even realized that the lead woman runner hadn't passed yet. And she finished the race in first place. But there were already signs of concern and deception. Right? She wasn't sweaty. She hadn't worked hard like the rest of us, right? She didn't know the route, the course. She couldn't speak to the twists and turns. She couldn't talk about her timing intervals. And sure enough, it was proven that she was never part of us. Well, we want to run the race with excellence, right? We want to do the hard work that's required. We don't want to take the easy way out like Rosie Ruiz. False teachers are going to crop up. We need to expect those deceptions and say, right on schedule. We need to safeguard ourselves with God's word and his spirit. And we need to stay steadfast in running the race and following Christ to the end. Where we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's pray. God, thanks for these ladies that have come out here to study, to know you better, to serve you better, to love you more. God, honor that. Those are those are good, good things. Lord, I know you're pleased by that. Continue to guide us and protect us. God, protect our church from false teachers. May we be able to see them and to address that, Lord. Lord, give us an increased desire for your word, an increased sensitivity to your spirit, and a perseverance to follow Christ. May we encourage each other in our groups today with transparent sharing that we might be runners that come alongside each other and strengthen each other to finish the race with excellence. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.